Blog Talk Radio. author of the books Live from the Cafe and Moment in the Sun, The Dark Places, Good and Evil, and Caught Up in a Book and Its Web. All of this against the backdrop of South Africa. This sets the stage for the bookseller's secret, the second book by Kathy Jordan. And Kathy joins us now on the program. Welcome aboard, Kathy. Hello, Tori. Thanks for having me. Well, let us first begin as... Uh, the bookseller's secret starts sort of with a prologue by uh, a journalist named Mason, but there's a little bit of backstory to the bookseller's secret, and maybe you could tell us a little bit about how uh, all of these interesting characters come together and how Eva is at the at the heart of all this. Okay. So Eva Van Hollensworth, so she is our main super-duper bad guy. She is the female antichrist. And that's kind of where the whole book got its start. So I wanted to write a horror novel. They always tell you to write what interests you, write what you know. Well, I'm not saying at all that I know anything about devils and demons and the Antichrist. But I I am a religious education teacher. And so one of the things that I've always found interesting is when I talk to my CCD students about God, you know, their eyes kind of glaze over, they get a little bored, but by God, when you mention the devil's name, you know, their eyes pop open, they're interested. And I've always kind of wondered, like, why? Why are people so interested in the dark side? And, you know, when you tell them about the good things, they just glaze over like, yeah, yeah, yeah. So anyway, so I wanted to kind of write something like that, like to kind of sort of answer that question. I don't know that I've gotten to that answer yet in my books, but the thing was I wanted to – I just didn't want to write a cliched book, so I wanted to write something different, go outside the box, think something different, different, different. And so South Africa is a very different area. It's not America, obviously. It's um, It's got a lot of roots in mysticism and spirituality and, um, you know, religions that are not like ours. And uh, they had this saying that when the devil was cast from heaven, he landed on the African continent. So that kind of really sparked my interest there. And then I thought, okay, so if I'm going to write a horror, I want, because everybody always says the Antichrist as a man. And I thought, well, I'm going to make it a woman, because that's not a cliche. I don't know that anybody has ever done that. If they have, that was I'm, what I'm I aware. wanted to ask about. I wanted to ask about yeah. what uh, what cast uh, the female was. It just to be different, or did it just? Uh, how did it come to you in terms of the creative process? So it came to me number one because it broke the cliche. Okay, and it mm-hmm. came to me number two because I am super intrigued by evil female villains. Um, of course, the villains are evil, but I mean, like, really, really bad. Like, think about Gillian Flynn. She um, she writes a lot about flawed female characters. 
And mm-hmm. then uh, Ira Levin has got a couple flawed female characters. Um, there's Anne Rice has got her flawed female characters. And I love them, but I don't know, besides Julian Flynn, I don't know that anybody really puts them at the forefront. And it, it just seems so intriguing to me that, you know, oh, it's always got to be the man that's the bad guy. Well, you know, if you... Not always. I mean, you know, not that I want to be a bad person myself, but, you know, it's kind of intriguing to to just turn that, again, turn that cliche on its head, put the woman at the forefront, make her the bad guy. It's intriguing. It's interesting. And why can't it be her? So, And it also comes that... back to, right, and that, it comes back to that question of, you were saying earlier there about, and you note this in your foreword, about, uh, what is the attraction to so-called evil and what is the attraction right. to that dark side? But we always have that attraction. We just, it's like, we want to read about it. We want to experience it, but we don't want to live it. Do we? No, absolutely not. Yeah. Right. <laughs> now, and, I was also going to ask the question. Yeah, go ahead. So I was just going to say, and that's how my, when you asked about my cast of characters, my reporter, my, the, the lead guy in um, the bookseller's secret, Mason Barry, he kind of gets into that. You know, he wonders that question, too. And as a reporter looking for his next lead story, he hears about this Ava von Hollensworth, and that's what gets him over to South Africa. That's what gets him interested. And then he winds up going down that dark path that he never intended to go down. Again, he was interested in it but didn't want to live it, and actually does wind up living it. And Mason came across to me, and it's like, now I work as a journalist, so it's kind of, we're all a little bit cynical. We're all a little bit uh, skeptical of just about everything because we don't always believe the truth is there. But there's so many varying degrees of journalists, and there's so many, each person has its own way of approaching it. Mason kind of struck me as that guy that was willing to put himself out there, but it's funny too, because it's like, his motives, and then what he later writes for short, like, blurbs and stuff, I, 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 I thought, it's like, I know this guy, but I'm not sure I know this guy. And that one mm-hmm. of, that's one of the things that made the story really cool for me was that I, as much as I could identify with Mason, and I probably would have done some of the things that he did to try to get the story and get to Ava, get that big one, it's like, I'm still not sure quite who you are. And maybe Mason doesn't even know. Yeah, well, yeah, well, that's what happens. You know, he starts off thinking one thing, thinking he's being this cynical reporter and that he's doing his job. And then, yeah, he, as he asks questions and wonders and wonders, it becomes a little bit of self-discovery. And then the self-discovery opens up more questions, which opens up more questions. And then, yeah, you lead to wondering, well, who am I? And what do I want to know? And what am I willing to sacrifice in order to get what I want? Whatever it is that you mm-hmm. want, you know, because we all want different things on our question line. And the question, of course, yeah, and the question for him, it never really seems to get answered. But that really leads me right into the gentleman who's, well, he's probably not really a gentleman, but the guy who's really at the center. Jeffrey Thurmont is really was, was the central focus in seeking Samil because he's the one who made contact with Ava. And here is someone who, after all this time, it's like he knows what he's done, but Jeffrey is such an interesting character. Maybe give us a little bit more about what led him to this and, you know, where does he see himself now? 
Okay. So Jeffrey Thurmont, he makes the appearance as the main character in the first book, Seeking Samael, um, or Seeking Samuel. It doesn't matter how you pronounce it. Um, but <laughs> so that's no, that's okay. That's okay. Seeking Samael, Samuel. What it, it doesn't matter. Um, he makes his first appearance in that book, and he's the main character. And it's again the quest. You know, who am I? What do I want? So he's an attorney. His father was also an attorney. His father's the one that brought him from England over to South Africa, and they had this business. They were solicitors, and Eva Van Hollensworth was their main client. Well, Jeffrey's father, of course, being involved with some of the low cast of characters that he was involved with, uh, he winds up stealing from everybody and, you know, just takes off and disappears, and Jeffrey is left wondering where he is, whatever happened to him. And so now Jeffrey who was always wealthy, is left destitute with the people, the tax people on his back, clients who are now threatening to sue him. He's lost his friends. He's lost his connections. He's lost his family. And he's in a country, a foreign country. And so instead of just kind of giving up and throwing in the towel, he decides, well, I'm going to see if I can't somehow get back what I had. And I'm going to start right at the top. I'm going to start with this Eva Van Hollensworth, who was my dad's top client. And so that's how he makes his appearance. And his quest is, you know, he wants to find out what happened to his dad, and he wants to try to rebuild everything that he had. And so Jeffrey starts off kind of as, you know, somebody that is, again, you know, searching for what he had, what he needs, what he wants. But then as he becomes intrigued in this person, Ava, finds out who she really is and what she's all about – and what she can, in fact, give him, uh, he goes down, again, a path that he never intended to go down and just winds up becoming sucked into this life. And he winds up becoming, you know, personified as Samael. He now is almost, not quite 100%, but almost is the Samael reincarnate. And it leaves him sort of at this point of now he's sort of, He's sort of like the buffer between Ava and the rest of the world. And exactly. Ava in herself, I mean, we don't see very much of her, but we no. hear so much. And mm-hmm. it, it filters a lot through him. But Eva also has, she has no limits on her evil or no limits on her power. But you may want to clarify is there are some things she cannot do or physically she is incapable of doing. Like, for example, there's the note that she cannot, it's, she's almost like a vampire. It's like she cannot go outside or she can't go into the light. Now, is that a mm-hmm. religious thing or is there something else at work here? So there is a lot more at work here. So in some of these things I cover in the first book. Um, so I wanted to give her these vampire type qualities, but again, break out of the cliche. Okay, so I use a little bit of science to kind of explain why some of the things are going on. So she has this disease um, where she cannot go into the light because if she does, she'll get uh, cancer. It's it's a real disease um, that affects, you know, some people. It's like melanoma. It's called xerotorma pigmentosa. 
Mm-hmm. So it's a it's a melanoma type of cancer, and again, it's real. And what happens is, as soon as you get hit with the light, it almost does have a vampire-like quality to it, where it just begins to immediately hit you with melanoma. Okay, your skin starts to wrinkle, it starts to turn black, you get these sores all over you. It degenerates mm-hmm. you super quickly, and the cancer will kill you. And people who have it, who are actually born with it, because it is a, um, a you know, it's it's a genetic disease, who have it, they usually don't make it into uh, not too far into adulthood. So that's mm-hmm. my explanation for her and why she can't go into the light. She's actually got this disease, and since she reincarnates, okay, so she lives forever, she's immortal, but she can be killed. So she, you know, if she lives too long beyond her life expectancy with the xeroderma pigmentosa, she'll die from cancer. So there's that. Um, the green eyes are explained um, well, that's kind of explained right in the beginning of the bookseller secret, the whole thing with the green eyes. And um, so what else, what else is her limit? Okay, her limit is she actually can't leave the South Africa. She can't leave the African continent. She's bound physically. She's bound to the continent um, because she can't travel across the water. So why can't she travel across the water? Well, her she gets her power through, even though the sun, here's here's the irony, even though the sun could kill her, okay, she needs the actual light to make her powers work because her powers are not just supernatural, but they also work through physics. So there's all kinds of things that happen, all kinds of ways that she can play with your mind and make you see things that weren't really there or, you know, make you do things that you didn't want to do just by manipulating um, the power that comes through light. Very scientific Mm -hmm. thing. And so water disperses light, and that's why she can't travel through the country through Africa. That makes it such a fascinating, and it makes it such a fascinating thing because she's this dangerous creature, and yet look at the frailties that she has and that she must guard against. And I guess Jeffrey is sort of the guardian in in a way for her. Right. I must ask now about the book. This book that Mason goes into one of these odd little bookshops and finds out that this, that this book, which Jeffrey describes, I think in chapter three, a little bit, Mm -hmm. this book has been banned, but this book Mm -hmm. is not only, it's almost like a manifesto, but it is also the way into the web, so to speak. Maybe you could tell us a little about this, this book that Eva, we have a book within a book, which is is always cool. Exactly. So that was kind of, I really had a lot of fun investigating this book. So, there's been other stories about a book, you know, this evil book. Um, but what happens with this book is it changes, okay? So she wrote it. She was the author. and She intends it to go public. She wants people to read it. But at the same time, the reason why Ava is not really explored too much as a POV character in any of these books is because, you know, the devil, he says one of his greatest uh, triumphs is that people don't believe in him. So that's kind of what Ava mm-hmm. wants. I mean, she exists and she has this lifestyle, but she doesn't want people to believe that she really is the Antichrist. So same thing with her book. So it's this catch-22. She wants people to read it, but she doesn't want anybody to read it who might stop her, okay, or stop its production or realize it for what it is. So so it's got this, like, cult following, her book does. And the second you purchase the book, the book changes. Okay, so it goes from having this very book-like quality on a bookshelf <clears throat> to uh, the second you purchase it, it goes from being like this leather-like regular old book to being something a little harder. It changes to a tin color, takes on a green cast. It's got a lock. You actually have to unlock it in order to open it. 
And then once, because, you know, you really got to go, you, you really got to want to open this book and you really got to read it. So the first time mm-hmm. you read it, okay, it's going to smell. So you've actually, it's like Pandora's box, only now we've got Pandora's book. So Pandora's book, you've mm-hmm. opened it up, you've just released all these demons that are inside the book waiting to get out there and wreak their havoc upon you, the reader. And so mm-hmm. as you read this book, you become absorbed by what's in there, and not only the information that's in there, but also the demonic possession. And the first time you read the book, you know, the book is only so thick, you only read so much. The second time you read the book, guess what? More chapters magically appear. Now there's more information. The third time you read the book, there's even more information. So you're getting uh, inducted deeper and deeper each time you read that book into demonic possession and into her world. Mm-hmm. Now, what is the um, what is the method or what is the use of the seeds? Because the seeds are a very important part of the book. If you don't have one, you don't have the other, so to speak. It seems. Correct. So again, going back to this little scientific explanation and what these things do. So Eva has the use of alchemy. So alchemy mm-hmm. back in the day, people always thought it was, you know, from this philosopher's stone, from this ancient stone that existed and that had magic in it. But in my theory, what I do is I say, you know, well, Ava, when she was excommunicated from the Garden of uh, Eden, she took with her the Tree of Life and some of the seeds mm-hmm. from the Tree of Life. And so I, you know, kind of had to conceptualize this ancient plant. Well, this ancient plant has seeds in it. That's where these seeds come from. They're seeds from the ancient plant, from the garden, uh, the, the tree of life, and she has this. And uh, these seeds, when you throw them into the air, can actually cause storms. And they've actually, scientists have actually found that there's ways to manipulate the air, okay, by throwing certain chemicals into the air where you can, you can get rain. So that's what Ava's done. She's, you know, she's supernatural, but she's also super intelligent. So she's almost omnipotent when it comes to her intelligence. So she's kind of fast-forwarding the old science uh, process a little bit, and she knows how to manipulate the weather. And so the seeds do that. The seeds can also turn non-precious metals into gold. And that becomes a problem for some people and, you know, a good thing for others. And that brings in um, partly Mason because he does come to learn about this. And then there are those who would be willing to get this kind of power and, or ability by any means necessary. And that brings from across America, from America to Africa, comes uh, Mr. McPhee, this this attorney. And we tend to find uh, there there's a guy who's really just kind of, it, it seems like his own big score is is whatever the next big thing is, and this has become it. He, he's an interesting one in himself. Mm-hmm. Yeah, William McPhee is a book collector, too. So he's this mm-hmm. wealthy man, and, you know, when you're wealthy and you've got all this extra money to spend, well, what do you do with it? Well, besides investing, you get toys, you collect things, stuff. And so mm-hmm. he collects books, rare books. And so he's pretty much got them all. Well, he becomes intrigued, and he finds out he gets this anonymous you know, tidbit of information from somebody, i.e. Ava, who, you know, hey, come here to South Africa and get a hold of this really ancient, interesting information in this book that nobody else has and nobody can get their hands on, but maybe you can. So that becomes his quest to go to South Africa and to find this rare book not only is it a rare book that's been banned, but, hey, 
it, there's something a little bit more to this book. You can you can turn lead into gold. You can turn iron into gold. Who wouldn't want a book that comes with seeds that shows you how to create gold, create your own, you know, mm. bank? And it is interesting because Eva's intent is, is is it becomes known later in the book, but makes it's like she seemed to reach out, and maybe this is her ability. She reaches out to McPhee, perhaps because she detects a weakness in him or something yeah. that she can exploit. Yep. Because this guy is That's like, exactly right. my money will buy anything. Right, exactly. It, That's exactly right. It, she, knows her, of, she knows her victims. Mm-hmm. And she can expose, and she sees him as someone, there's a certain, sha- I just felt a certain, as a reader myself to it, there was a certain shallowness to him. It was like, I have all these toys and they're not enough. Yes, exactly. That's what she was doing. And she's trying to get over Mm -hmm. to America because, like I said, she can't leave the African continent. So she's got to somehow uh, reach out across the world, and she's going to be using others to reach out across the world since she herself can't actually physically do it. And they become the agents of her destruction, perhaps. Yeah, her ambassadors. Mm Mm-hmm. We're speaking with Kathy Jordan. She is the author of The Bookseller's Secret on the Brown Posey Press Show, which is part of the BookSpeak Network. I'm your host, Tori Gates. And, Kathy, we have uh, sort of assembled this uh, dysfunctional little cast of characters here. Um, I wanted to get into now uh, some of the individuals they come across. For example, uh, maybe you could explain some of the characters like Early on, we come out of it with a rather with a rather dangerous character named Granger. He seems to be like Louther and a couple of the others. There's these odd creatures that just sort of they're not really minions because they're a little more intelligent than that. But Granger is a character in himself. Mm-hmm. Yes. Okay. So Granger and Louther, Mr. Granger and Louther, they, they are demons. And um, but they're kind of like the higher echelon of demons, and they kind of expo- um, I was really um, the Screw Tape Letters. Okay, C.S. Lewis's the Screw Tape Letters. That's kind of what yes. inspired me with these guys, with these two. So they are, you know, again the higher level of demons. They're intelligent. They're really kind of, you know, her left hand and right hand people. But at the same time, they're still demons. They're still clever. They're still liars. They're still, um, you know, like anybody else who's trying to claw their way to the totem pole. They're, you know, going to screw each other over. And Mm -hmm. so that kind of leads to a little bit of dysfunction in the book. But, yeah, that's what they are, and they are creatures. They are not uh, anything you'd really want to see in true form. And Louther kind of has this creepy form in and of himself. He's does appear a little bit more human-esque than Granger does, whereas Granger appears more like an animal, almost like a cross between an alien and a lizard. And uh, mm-hmm. where Louther takes on this kind of horrific, big, burly, nasty, violent-looking man. And he also has a kind of a dog-like quality to him as well. Yeah, yep, yep, yep. And it seems like, and, it, and in, for, for those who shapeshift, it's like a lot of it is, depending on the situation or depending on what is required of them. And for example, Lazarus' relationship with Mason is such a strange adversarial thing. And yet at the same time, it's like, you know, Lazarus' job is to play this guy. 
Exactly. So he's coming off as his protector. You know, I'm going to protect you. I'm since, mm-hmm. you know, I'm what I am. I can help you get close to Ava, but I'm I'm your friend. Like, you know, uh, even though I'm a demon and even though I'm not really somebody that you'd want to hang out with on a regular basis, in this situation, I'm your friend and I'm going to help you. Yeah, and it, and it leads into, uh, as as we say, you know, when, when finally Mason finally gets his, you know, without giving it all away, Mason is getting closer and closer to what he wants. And mm-hmm. it's where you really start to get into the scarier aspects of this story because it sort of like from the early part, there is this like with Thurmont, with Jeff Thurmont, there is this controlled evil that that mm-hmm. is right there. He's like, he's been, he's experienced, he's been, there long enough and he's been attached to Ava enough that he is able to harness his own power and he's also able to keep it in a perspective and keep it in a control so that the inexperienced like Mason don't really know that it's even being done to them which is really it it makes him so much uh, you know it makes him so much more uh, I'm not sure what the word is but it's like there's there's that sort of character of um, it, it's a much more knowing and seeing sort of guy, but you're never really quite sure yeah. of what he's up to either. Now, right. I've, I've got to ask at this point, Kathy, it's like some of these characters, there's there's so much that is a little bit way out, and yet at the same time, so many of them are grounded, and any character that, that, that I create usually is grounded in a couple of people I know, and then the, the characteristics of others I either come up with or they they sort of get welded in it's like osmosis they all come together um without naming any names uh, there must be some people in your <laughs> life that have come across that you're like oh yes you're going in my book <laughs> well i tell you what no one in particular but mm-hmm. uh you know maybe certain deeds that you know other people have been guilty of uh and then i think maybe just you know inspiration from i do watch a lot of horror movies so, you know, the, the cool aspects of, you know, this horror character merged with this horror character, merged with this uh, horrific thing that I know so-and-so has done, or this, you know, thing that really happened in the news that I saw the other day that is just so freaky and so inre- unrealistic that, you know, it's it's not making national news. Or I, I don't know, it's just, it's really this compilation. I can't say, I honestly can't say. That not that I won't say I can't say that none of these characters are truly based on anybody that I know. I, I, yeah, I mean you know a reporter, the Mason Barry is just this questioning person, you know, just questioning, questioning, wanting, wanting. Um, and then Louther, the demons again, they were just like these screwed up individuals. Where if I were, you know, trying to corrupt corrupt someone wholly, implicitly. Uh, by trying to de- befriend them and then turn on them, you know, what would I do? So I, I got to say that was probably the hardest part of writing these books is since really they weren't based on anybody, you know, it was really a stretch and it was hard because you have to sit back and try to put yourself in their POV and put yourself into their head and into their body and ask yourself, well, if I were, were, really were this corrupt, how would I respond? How would I act? So it was kind of hard. Mm-hmm. It was really stretch. Yeah. One of the things, too, in the bookseller's secret is that uh, 
apart from many books I've written, I think I think one of the only books that I've ever written, read and read in recent years, um, a Japanese um, artist and writer named Mayoko Ano wrote a book called In Clothes Called Fat. And someone made this really interesting observation that there are no winners in this book and there are no heroes in this book. It's mm-hmm. like none of these people, because, and because that particular story had a number of characters, every one of them flawed, many of them flawed beyond their own understanding, with the exception of the main character who knew and was only capable of so much because of her own problems. But it was like, in this, I mean, it sets up for the next one, I guess, in that not any of these, like the, the redeeming qualities of so many of these people either were lost or they end up getting lost. I mean, your one redeeming character is uh, the relative, the priest who tries to come and he seems to have tries to perform an exorcism who tries to perform whatever he can to, to do this. And yet he walks into something and he doesn't get much of an idea. Charles doesn't really know what he's just got himself into. Yeah. Yeah. Charles is the priest. And then, um, uh, that, um, inspector to he is, um, Mm. He's a police officer. Now, I'm glad you brought him up because in the first book, we have a a different inspector um, in the first book. And these inspectors, they belong to a police unit in South Africa. And this thing really exists. Now, it's not called the unit, but there really was, is one over there in Pretoria, Pretoria, South Africa, that deals exclusively with supernatural crimes because the supernatural Mm -hmm. is a problem over there in South Africa. So now it's a very secretive organization, and I couldn't actually find the name of them throughout my research, so I named them on my own. I called them the unit. Okay, So it's Mm -hmm. these police officers, and they are on some level aware of Ava, but since none of them have been able to infiltrate her home, okay, because it's kind of this thing that exists, but people don't see it. It's on this mountain cliff, okay, but you actually travel down and then up and then down, 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 and then around corners. And, you you know, you just mm-hmm. travel through this freaky wilderness and all this stuff that just shouldn't exist, okay? And so nobody's ever found it. Nobody's ever really seen it unless she invites you there. Again, the vampire, you know, you have to invite him in first. Again, Ava's not a vampire, but she has to invite you there in order to step onto her property. So, but these are two inspectors from this supernatural unit in South Africa. And, I, you know, they're good guys. They really do want to do a good thing, but they're human and they keep underestimating who they're coming up against. So, and, mm-hmm. and one of my big things when it comes to horror novels is I just hate how these horror heroes, you know, the, the hero bad guy, not really a hero, uh, you know, just the main, the main bad guy, uh, how they fall mm-hmm. so easily. And, you know, if you really are dealing with the devil, I mean, how long has the devil existed? You know, assuming you believe in the devil, okay, since conception. So you're not going to kill her. It's just not going to happen. But, you know, again, she does have, she does have, have frailties. There is a way to get to her, but nobody's quite yet found it. Now I'm exploring that in book three. So just to there say that. To but be, um, yes, yeah. Kind of like a, kind of like a professional arrogance from Dusu. Yes, yes, exactly, exactly. It is kind of like a professional arrogance. They, they, they want to do the right thing, but yeah, they keep underestimating her. 
Now, it's, it's an interesting thing, too, is with the leading in of what you talked about with the supernatural. And um, now you can call it superstition if you like, but um, my own experience uh, in the pagan world is you, you sort of dip into it without really mentioning it, but the religious, the, uh, the spiritual, and the supernatural, these worlds do kind of collide in a very unique way in your story because there's almost like equal weight to each of them because a lot of people, they're not going to believe in the supernatural unless they've seen something or they've experienced it. And mm-hmm. you've brought them together pretty well in that everybody kind of has their own uh, concept and yet it's like time and again, there's the misconception or, or as you said, the underestimation of Ava's power, the underestimation of what you think you know and what you think you're capable mm, yeah. of dealing with. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, was, was that a conscious thing that you wanted to yeah. do, or did that just come out? Yeah. No, I think it was conscious. Uh, well, definitely it was a conscious thing. And I think it, you know, it came out on its own, um, you know, bringing these two worlds together. Uh, you know, I just kind of was thinking, like, you know, if we go back 100 years and you throw the idea of somebody from a hundred years ago, the idea of a computer, you know, Ooh, that's witchcraft, you know, and, Mm -hmm. (laughs) or, you know, cell phones, you know, we couldn't even begin a hundred, 200 years ago to think of, you know, some of the things that exist today, even going back to when I was a kid, if you had told me, you know, I'd be sitting at home on a laptop communicating to others through social media, I probably wouldn't have believed it. So, uh, you know, and then think about how, all the information goes through computers on laptops, you know, into the ether and connects up to somebody else without wires. You know, ooh, how can that happen? You know, it's just, it's so interesting now, too, how I just saw this story on the news the other day, how they're growing an ear. This soldier had lost her ear in an explosion, mm-hmm. and they're growing a new ear for her on her forearm. Again, really mm-hmm. interesting, cool things that you go back 100 years, and it's, 200 years and you're like that's not right you know where's this coming from where is this information coming from how is this the way it is well it's it's science okay so but you know it's hard to explain it and you know Mm -hmm. we just know it works it's like you know i turn on the computer i know it works do i have to understand it for it to work no i don't and so that was (laughs) kind of what i was trying to dabble in with this whole supernatural thing do you have to understand it to know that it works no you don't but i do have characters explaining it because i kind of like it to come off as yeah this could happen the old suspension of disbelief Mm -hmm. and and isn't that the thing we want everybody to just let that go for a little while and get drawn into it and and become part of the story and uh, you, you hope i think that's what we all hope for yes oh absolutely yeah. Yeah, I would well, agree. Well, um, and as as this story gets more and more involved, and um, you know, there's there's requisite amounts of, of gore, and just the the things that, for example, the, the experience Mason goes through, his transformation, and it's it's almost like his de-evolution, and it's like we're going, and it's like there's almost that that adding of of you're you're not only going through the dark place, you're going to live it. And um it's um I don't think you did it's obvious you didn't do it to just gross people out. There was there was so oh, much no. more oh, behind no. that. <laughs> I actually tried to 
hold back on the gore. I mean, I'm not a big fan of the whole gore genre. Um, mm-hmm. I don't, I yeah, I don't really like torture or really really gory scenes. But you can't, you know, you can't gloss over it. You know, it's reality. There's a lot of when you start reading the first book, Seeking Samael, there's really not a whole lot of foul language, but as Jeffrey becomes engrossed into this lifestyle, you know, you see him change, and one of the ways he changes is from becoming a very well-kept, very um, well-spoken man to, you know, now he's not really taking care of his uh, the way he dresses, and he starts using very foul, very common language, so he's changed. And... um, Mm -hmm. Yeah, so I've I've kind of that's really my take on the grossness too. You know, it's there, it's it has its place, but I try to rein it in without going overboard. Right, right. We're speaking with Kathy Jordan, who is the author of the book Seller's Secret here on the Brown Posey Press Show. Now, Kathy, we must move into. We were just talking a little bit about how we go back in time. We've got two stories here that have such elements, and you talked a little bit earlier about horror films and that sort of thing. And you mentioned C.S. Lewis, who you quote at the beginning. Uh, Tell us a little bit about your beginnings uh, in terms of, um, you know, your upbringing, your reading, your writing, and that sort of thing. You you noted that um, you you started coming up with stories quite early in life. Tell us about the beginning of you, and and let's see where this uh, comes from. Okay. So uh, I've always liked writing, and I was one of those earlier dabblers in fan fiction before it ever became a thing on the Internet. So I would read Mm -hmm. my stories as a kid, and then I would take those same characters and and write the story the way I wanted it to go. And I was a big Mm -hmm. fan of those stories, too, where they had the alternate endings. You know, turn to page 45 if you would throw the rock. Turn to page 44 if you would not throw the rock. You know, almost like the Uh choose-your-ending type book. And so I was really fascinated with those. Um, So those were my kind of my favorite things to do and to read. And I always loved to uh, Twilight Zone. So... Really what I like, when I call myself a horror reader and a horror writer, I I like the horror that just kind of takes you somewhere where you didn't think you were going to go, um, takes you mm-hmm. down a path that you didn't expect. Um, not necessarily demonic, even though that's what my first two books are. And those are the mm-hmm. things that have always intrigued me. So a big fan of C.S. Lewis, big fan of Ira Levin, big fan of Gillian Flynn, Anne Rice, Stephen King. Uh, those are the things I've always liked to read and shows that I've liked to watch on television, again, are the ones that are just different, you know, just creepy, weird. and But they make you think. They make you question and they make mm-hmm. you think. And I guess that's mm-hmm. where I've always wanted to write something that people could believe, that, again, wasn't cliched, that made you think, that was interesting and made you want to turn the page. And then when you put the book down, you didn't really walk away from it because on the second read, you'd get a little bit more out of it. Mm-hmm. That's what I always try. Now, that's, those were the kind of books I loved as a kid was the one that, that I put it down after I thought I'd done reading it. And then I'd go back and pick it up again and be like, and then that second, it's like, it's like reading Ava's book that second time through. It's like, oh, I didn't see that before. And then suddenly there's, there's right. more and more. What kind of authors got you the most? In, 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 in... Um, like I said, um, Ira Levin, he's so really, 
interesting and different. Mm-hmm. Uh, Anne Rice, I read a lot of hers. Um, my newest one, of course, is, uh, I've mentioned her a couple times, Jillian Flynn. I do like to read her. Mm-hmm. Uh, Helen Oyo- Oyoyomai, she's very different, very interesting. Her stuff is, I mean, you want to talk about something you have to p- put down to pick back up again and reread. That's mm-hmm. her. Yeah. And That's then um, also now, Shirley Jackson. Love Shirley Jackson. Mhm. I think everybody had to read. Uh, everybody had to read the lottery when they were in middle school. <laughs> yep. 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 <laughs> and and that and that and I remember I, I I read it in seventh or eighth grade. I can't remember which, but I just remember being incredibly creeped out by it. <laughs> And then we have always been in the castle. That was kind of a really good one. Speaking of Shirley Jackson's The Lottery, that inspired one of my short stories called The Candy Factory, kind of a young adult version of The Lottery, mm-hmm. having to do with candy, though, not rocks. Yeah, very inspirational writing. I've got, oh, oh, and um, Flannery O'Connor, Ugh, another one that I yes. just love to read. Again, she's not horror, but it's just, it's different. It's cool. Makes you think. And that's and that's the other thing too is to get get the reader to think a little bit. It's not just a dry read. Um, I've always found those kind of things too, where where you are reading into a lot more. And it's like um, when I think of I think more recently uh, in recent years I've read more of Gabriel Garcia Marquez and his wordplay. He paints. I call it painting pictures with words and it was almost a revelation it was a revelation to read 100 years of solitude and i was like this is it was almost like it was like an acid trip without the drugs it was so powerful i love that book of his yes he is absolutely very inspiring um his yeah i've always been jealous of writers who have that gift that can really just you know, pull these words out of the air that succinctly say what they want it, what they want them to say, but at the same time have just so much power behind their meaning. I love and that. that. And it's like and and planting you in the middle of this place that you shouldn't even be, and putting you right at the side of the characters, that sort of thing. Um, I well, I also think one of one of the books that, that he did, A Chronicle of the Death Foretold, remains one of my favorites. It's a shorter mm. novel, and, mm-hmm. and it's like you, you know what's going to happen. You know what they're going to do in this story, and you know, you know the victim of the death foretold, mm-hmm. but it's like it's the story that you are placed right next to these people, and here's what happened, and here's what's going to happen. And here it's right. like there are stories within the stories, and there's a few people – there's few authors that I find that can really, really put you in that situation, and uh, he was certainly a master of that. I just think of that. Absolutely. Yeah, I would agree with you 100%. Mm-hmm. He's another one of my favorites. Yeah, for sure. Mm-hmm. Now, I must ask, Kathy, in the time that we have, you talk also about being a, a religious educator. What are you teaching? Where, where do you teach? Let's tell us a little bit about how you got into that. Oh, I got into that a long time ago. Um, so I was raised in a Catholic school uh, all my life, except for college. So elementary, high school, mm-hmm. Catholic school, taught by nuns. You know, some of the nuns were nice. Some of them were the old knuckle crackers with the ruler and the pointers. But uh, <laughs> <laughs> there's, you know, a whole range of them out there. But so I was raised that way. And I remember being tapped when I was in high school to substitute teach 
for CCD, and I enjoyed it. And um, I've always enjoyed teaching. That's one of the things I do. I'm a facilitator, a writing facilitator. And But anyways, uh, I was tapped not too long ago, probably about 10 years ago, to teach CCD here at our church. So CCD is uh, Catholic education for people who go to public schools that aren't getting that education in the Catholic school, because they don't go to Catholic school, they go to public school. So that's what I do. I teach uh, fourth grade level, and I teach it on Sundays, and it's to public school kids who are Catholic but aren't in the Catholic school education system. And um, so it's just kind of, uh, you get about an hour and a half to two hours with these kids to give them you know, what they need to know about their education, about their religious education, who God is, how he works in our lives, that sort of thing. And it's, I enjoy doing it. Um, I, I, I love seeing the questions that the kids ask. I like being able to have open discussions. That's one thing that we do do. I try not to, I, I don't like a boring classroom. And so we get away from the book a lot. And we just have open discussion. We talk about things and, you know, how God works in our life and, you know, well, what does this mean when that happens and how does this affect me when that happens, that sort of thing. And so I enjoy doing it. I ask a lot of questions myself. So I enjoy when people can bring questions and we get an opportunity to talk about it. Right. And that's how I got involved. uh, mm -hmm. And it seems like also now you have found yourself in some other areas here which – this is, and I think this is important for writers to do. Sometimes we don't even know how to do it, but you ended up uh, working with the Perry County Council of the Arts, and there's this anthology that you're working on. Tell us about this, because this is going to open doors for a bunch of authors and for us to read about them. Okay, this, is, this has been a really fun project. So this started, it's, it's actually got a more interesting background. So with me being a facilitator, a writing facilitator, and having a relationship with a publisher, Lawrence Knorr from Sunbury Press, he likes really to publish local authors. And so with me being mm-hmm. a facilitator, first of all, at library systems, I had these great authors that just always came to me with these questions. How do I get published? How do I get published? How do I get published? Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. we tapped into Lawrence Knorr and said, hey, you know, would you be interested in an anthology collection from writers who have never been published before that are part of a, a, a writing class? And he said, yeah, sure. So fun. And, you know, when do you get to take that to a writing class? You know, this is a professionally published piece of work that, hey, if you go through the publication system, you know, you're not going to get an opportunity to do this. So, you, you know, you get to take your short stories, submit them to me. Um, I edit them. We put them in a uh, – Sunbury Press puts them into a book that's actually available on Amazon, no cost to you what for, whatsoever, and you get to say, hey, look what, looky what I did. I just got published. So we did that with one of the books at the library system where I work. Well, Wade Fowler, mm-hmm. who um, – runs this newspaper in Newport, Pennsylvania, also where the Perry County Council of the Arts is. He was involved in Perry County Council of the Arts as well. He saw this last anthology collection and said, hey, I'd really like to do something local like that, but instead of putting it in a book, I'd like to see it published in these newspapers in Newport. And we were like, Mm -hmm. oh, yeah, we can do that. So we tapped our Perry County Council of the Arts students to do something very similar, only instead of doing it in a book form, we're doing it in a newspaper form. And it got published as inserts in these newspapers. So chapter one was written by one author. Chapter two was written by another author, all students at Perry County Council of the Arts. Chapter three, chapter four, chapter five. And now 
uh, that this has come to its you know end, its fruition. We're taking these inserts, piling it into a novella collection anthology. Also, will be published by Sunbury Press, and we intend for that to come out. We're thinking August slash September will be our launch for the series novella. Very exciting, mm-hmm. so much fun. Uh, and, you know, that's really how that worked. And they've been great pieces where each author started off on their chapter, had to be taken over by a second author who got to take the story their own way. You know, how would I take these characters and what would I do with these mm-hmm. characters? And it's so interesting, same characters, different author, and you really get to see the author's voice come out. And um, I think that to me was one of the most interesting things as being the editor on this project, is seeing the different authors' voice come out with the same characters, same storyline. They still had to follow the storyline conceived by the Perry County Council of the Arts. They had to stick with the same characters, but they got to take them on their journey through their, uh, you know, how they interpret these characters, how they think they would respond to pressure and response. Pressure. And I would bet each of, yeah, and I would bet each of these students came from their own their own walk of life, their own, their own style. And that must have been really, I mean, that must have been fascinating, but it must have been pretty challenging too, because it's like each different person is getting their hands on this. And, it was. Uh, but it, and it must have been fun too. It was fun. It was certainly challenging. I think the person who went first, that was Carrie Jacobs, um, she, it was mm-hmm. challenging to her because she, you know, she had to take it all from square one. And then she had to end it on a cliff, and then she had to walk away from it because these characters are no longer hers. The story is no longer hers. She doesn't get to take it where she wanted to take it. So now she has to drop it and let it go. Now the next person has to take over, and they have to do the same thing. They have to take their characters off this cliff that they've been put on, and then they have to leave them on another cliff for the next author, and yet you have to wipe your hands and walk away because it's no longer your story. And that's really the hard part, I think, for the authors is saying, you know, oh, this this experience that I've put in here, these pressures and responses that I've given my characters, I have to now walk away from because they're not my babies. That's really hard to do as a writer. As an editor, it was hard that for is. me to go through this and say, you know, okay, we got to take it this way, we got to take it that way, you know. I loved the different voices. Again, each author had a different voice because just like you said, they come from walks of life. Your walks of life, your experience, what you read, you, what you, the genre is that you focus on, you see that in their writing. You know what I mean? Because that, mm-hmm. that formulates your writing process and who you are as an author. So you can definitely see that. And that was the one thing I didn't want to mess with. You know, I wanted their voice to come out. I wanted it to be what it is, but at the same time, you still have to keep on story. Still a structure that you have to follow and you have to keep on story. So that was, mm-hmm. that was really the hard part as an editor was merging those two things. And sort of, sort of guiding everybody without guiding them too much, not telling them what exactly. to do kind of thing. Yeah. yeah, yep, yep, yep. Well, Kathy, I must now ask, uh, what is next for Eva, Jeffrey, and this, this uh, cast of characters? When will we be uh, finding the next chapter in this, uh, this saga for uh, Seeking Samuel and the Bookseller's Secret? Oh, well, see, that's the thing. I am a I, – I love – to write and it's so hard I have scratched book three I can't tell you how many times but book mm-hmm. three right now I'm in a critique group and it's being passed along so it's in the process uh, it may still be a little while before I've got it finished but I'm hoping it'll be soon and hoping to wrap okay. her up and is, what's going to happen to her well 
I don't know. There's going to be a redeeming character in the end, for sure. For sure, there's going to be somebody who saves the day. I have to end it that way. I will end it that way. But that's all I can say, because mm-hmm. that's really all I know right now. <laughs> I fully understand that. I, I get that with a series. It's like I keep getting the question of, okay, what's going to happen next? Or is how is this going to end? And, and most of the time, it's like I only sort of have an idea of what point B is going to look like, because I'm standing at point mm-hmm. A, and it's not a straight line. We're going to have point A, A, point A, B, point A, B, C, and then maybe we'll get down there somewhere. But that's, but that's part of the process, though. It is. I found as a writer, I remember what really surprised me the most when I was, you know, began writing novels and short stories is that with your characters, when you throw more and more pressure at them, okay, when you give them more and more conflict, they turn into people that maybe you didn't expect them to turn into. They really do take on lives of their own. So for me to sit down and say, well, this is what that character is going to do. This is how I want this book to end, or this is what I want it to do. I allow my characters to go where they go based on, you know, what I put in the way of them getting what they want. I know what I want them to want to get, but I'm going to stop them from getting it. And how are they going to respond to that? And that's when they take on their own lives. And that, to me, has just been so fascinating as a writer. Mm-hmm. Well, my last question to you, Kathy, and you would be in a very good position as an educator to offer that advice and also as an editor. Anybody who is listening that maybe has got something that they've written or is thinking about it, what's the best advice you give to somebody who's getting started or is in a project and is trying to see it through? What would you tell them? Don't give up. Make time for yourself every day to write. Have a little space where you always have something sitting there and glaring at you saying, come to me, child, come, <laughs> sit down, <laughs> begin writing, don't give, don't give me up, don't walk away, don't abandon me. Um, you need that. You need to sit down every day and write a little something. Um, I know people that keep a little pad on them, you know, like in their pocket where they write. Uh, another piece of advice is if you're somebody that's always plugged in, unplug for a while. Okay, I had a friend, mm-hmm. a writing friend, who when he said he would always take his break at work, he would listen to music. Well, he said he stopped listening to music and instead would just kind of sit there and allow you know, himself to indulge in what's going on around him. And he found himself becoming inspired to write more and more and more. So I think that has a lot to do with it, too. Just, you know, you you got to write. This book is not going to get written on its own. You know, no magic elf is going to sit down and write the book for you. So that's my piece of advice. If you want to be a writer, write. If you've already gotten writ- got it written and you're in now the process of getting published or wanting to get published, um, there's a lot of information there at your fingertips for getting published. One thing I would like to discourage people from doing is Vanity Press. That's where you pay to get published. Don't do that. Um, oh, take the time. Yeah, take the time. It's it's worth the effort to have somebody back you who believes in you and who will push you and who will give you the resources you need to get professionally published and get your work out there. It's worth it. Just don't give up. Keep at it. Be tenacious. Don't give up. Right on. That's my Well, Kathy Jordan, thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate it. Oh, thank you. This has been a pleasure for me. I appreciate it as well. You've been listening to the Brown Posey Press Show. I'm Tori Gates, your host. Look for my works live from the cafe in a moment in the sun, as well as the works 
of Kathy Jordan and many other fascinating authors at brownposypress.com. This is the BookSpeak Network.